things change over time, and most of the time it's for the better. For the improve. Did anyone talk about something they're worse at than they were 10 years ago? I think in that little exercise, we mostly focused on the good change that has happened in our lives. None of us like, man, I lie way more than I did 10 years ago. I'm stealing so much more now. I, I just don't trust in God anymore. I don't know what's going on. No, we, we focus on the good because for us, change means improvement. It means transformation. And can you imagine what it would be like to never need to change? Everything, you're, you're absolutely perfect and you don't need to change. Well, that is the reality for God. That's where I was 20 years ago. That's where you were 20 years ago. You didn't need to change. All right. Um, God is perfect. He never needs to improve. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change, and that's something we call immutable. Everyone say the big theological word, immutable. Immutable. That doesn't mean you can't mute him. Uh, it means he's, he's unchangeable. He doesn't change. Nothing about God changes. I just saw a squirrel run by, and I hope he doesn't come in here. Because the window's wide open. Um, this kind of stability is downright astonishing in a world where everything changes. We cannot live without a newer iPhone every two years. Um, there's always a new show, a new season to our favorite show. There's new movies, new Avengers movies. You know, you think this is the last one? I doubt it, right? Uh, there's going to be something new, something improved, something shiny or something different. And it's hard to imagine uh, something that doesn't need to get better, something that's just perfect the way that it is. Um, and this is why studying the Word of God is the most important and valuable investment of time that any human can, can spend. Uh, if we read the Word of God, the Word of God is God's own Word explaining who he is and what he does, and it does not change. So he, some parts that we wrote, we're reading today were written uh, 4,300 years ago, and God is the exact same person today in Denver, although he's omnipresent as well, but Denver in 2019 as he was on this day. So it's really valuable for us to take time to discover his personality and who he is. Since he doesn't ever change, we can take in what we see and learn about God today on these pages and we can apply them to our own lives because he will always be the same. His character is consistent. He will be faithful to do all that he tells us about himself because he cannot lie. That's another part of being immutable. He cannot tell a lie. He will act the same way he has always acted. He will do what he has always done. And this is what it means to have faith in God. This is what we do. We are having faith that he will do what he says he will do, that he will be what he says he will be. So let's begin in our text in Exodus chapter 34 and see what happens. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tables of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain, and no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain." So this is the second time God is giving, uh, going to give the Ten Commandments or, or the law 
to Moses to give to the people. The first time, this is really important, the first time that God gave the law, gave the commandments, he invited the people to draw near to the mountain. He said, come here, Moses, you're going to come up, but I want the people, I want you guys to come up. But this time, it's very different. The people are told they have to stay away. What's happened between the last time and this time? Anyone remember over the past six weeks? What? Idolatry. Idolatry. The people received the Ten Commandments, and what did they say? We're going to do all of these all the time. You're going to be our God, and we are going to perform up to your standards all the time. We accept this covenant. And what did they do next? They dance naked around a golden calf, worshiping gold, right? Completely rejecting God, diving into idolatry. That's the first thing they did, right? They lasted like 30 seconds. Now, God, then Moses and, and, and God had to, had to have some conversations. And Moses is like, listen, God, I, I love these people. I know that they're going to they're gonna fail your standards, but... Would you please forgive them because you are gracious? And God said, yes, because God is God and he loves to forgive. And Moses is a picture of who? Jesus. Jesus. And Moses intercedes for the people. And so their failure is taken care of. Their failure is done away with. So God has to give the law again because Moses smashed them. And this time he, he tells the people they have to stay away. He's like, we did this once before where I invited you in and I, I gave you the law and I expected you to live up to my standards and we're not going to do that again. The people heard the law and they committed to keep it, but they failed within minutes. And this shows us that a system of religion where we have to live up to God's standard of perfection will always lead to failure. Not because God's standard is too high, but because we suck. We are terrible at keeping God's laws. We cannot measure up to his standards. And if you think you can, that's pride, which breaks one of the commandments anyway. You can't. We cannot do this. But God is faithful, and God will do it for us. And that's why we're getting this new giving of the Ten Commandments, but it's done in a different way. So instead of God presenting it to all the people saying, here is a, a, a set of standards that you guys need to live up to in order to be in my presence, God is going to figure out a new way to deliver the same commandments to the people, but in a way that is going to actually rescue them from their failure. It's going to be pretty cool as we look at this. So the people cannot draw near to God anymore. He, he sets up boundaries around the mountain. And God has made it very clear that those who walk in the flesh cannot please him. That's what this is going to represent for us. We cannot approach God based on our efforts or our desires or while we are in the flesh. God says, don't try to come up on my mountain. You can't get up here. Flesh isn't even allowed up here anymore. I, I don't like flesh anymore. Flesh is not allowed. But Moses could. Why? Why would Moses be allowed to come into God's presence? Because Moses is a picture of Jesus. And in his status of representing Jesus, 
God says, you come into my presence. I want you to come into my presence. Jesus is being pictured going into God's presence. Why? Jesus can always draw near to God. He is the mediator. He is the one who is the priest for all of us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, right? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, right? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. This is going to be the big picture we have today. Moses is a picture of Jesus. And God told the people, you stay away. But is that really what God is saying? No, God loves these people, but he knows that in their flesh they will fail. So he's saying, let's do away with the flesh-based relationship. We're going to do this a different way through Jesus. Through Jesus is how we're going to do this. So let's go on with our text and see what he says. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning, went up Mount Sinai, and the, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stones. Jesus, it says, ever lives to make intercession for us. That means he doesn't care about Fortnite. He is only concerned about you. He doesn't care about politics. He's concerned about you. He is all about taking your needs and your life before the throne of his father and meeting those needs and praying for you and delivering you, that is his passion. That is what he lives for. He ever lives to make intercession for us. What do we see Moses do? Moses gets up early in the morning. Moses, he, he, he cuts these stone. He's up working. He's doing the stuff that people could not do. And he loves it. He loves doing this for the people. He obeys God when the people can't, right? It says he did as the Lord commanded. The people are literally terrible at that. But Moses, he is able to do that. Jesus does God's will by standing in God's presence for us. God wanted someone to stand up for his people. And Jesus says, I'll do it. Jesus is going to cause God's law to be made real in us, in our hearts. So he's taking these Ten Commandments. he's, He's carving these himself. Where does Jesus inscribe the Ten Commandments in your life? In our hearts. He does away with the external list of commands and he says, I'm going to take care of this in a new and living way. I'm going to inscribe the Ten Commandments on your very heart so that you can't just look at a list and say, this is what I need to do to be a good Christian. You have to stop and you have to say, God, forgive me because I'm not a good Christian. And God, Deliver me with your spirit. I need you to take these things that I can't do, and I need you to put them in my heart, way down here. 
down deep where they will come out naturally. And that is what Jesus is going to do and it's going to be pictured for us here in this whole second giving of the law. How is God... um, How does God give us the law a second time? Like I said, he writes it on a second tablet by grace. The first tablet was a tablet of stone, but when Jesus writes the law, he writes it on the tablets of our heart. It's a totally different way to do it. Why would he do such a thing? Well, let's read. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh's God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the truth about God. This is God's reve- God revealed to us, um, and he's revealing to us his character by his character traits. This is what God is all about. This is what God cares about. And God reveals this to Moses freely. He's not holding anything back about who he is because their relationship is tight, okay? They're homies, That's my theological way of saying close friends. (laughs) It reminds me of exactly what we see in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we see Jesus and the Father having a conversation. And Jesus says, Father, we are so close that we are one. We call this united closeness. It means they know each other perfectly. They experience each other perfectly. There is no mystery. There is no unknown parts of each other. It is complete unity. And this is what he says in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this means that you and me are being invited into this perfect oneness that God and Jesus share. Knowing God in perfect oneness, in perfect intimacy, is everything for us. In in John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus says that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one also in us. And that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me. That they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me. That you have loved them as you have loved me. What is better than those words? Like those words are the most treasure-filled text that I could ever imagine. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus knows the Father's love and grace. And the Father gives his love and grace to Jesus. There's this exchange of 
love and grace. And Jesus says that we get to partake in knowing God in this way through him. Through him. You are in Christ by faith. You stand in him, like we talked about last week. The people were, in, back in Exodus, they were not allowed to approach in the flesh, right? He said, stay away in the flesh. But we are in Christ through faith. And these are symbolic because Moses is our mediator. Moses was the people's mediator. And so technically, the people were in Moses because they were in Moses' heart. He was mediating for the people. He brought them, and this shows, this foreshadows for us how our mediation happens. Does God need you in your flesh trying to make an impression to him? Trying to keep his law? Trying to fix everything in your life? No, he says, please, stop. You're terrible at doing this. You, You can't fix anything. I need you to stop, stay away in your stinking flesh, and trust the mediator. Come through the mediator into my presence, and he, what if you don't pray what's right? The Bible says Jesus loves to take your prayers and to add the incense of his own prayers and to, to fix them. All he's, he doesn't care if you're praying for what's right or for what's wrong. He just wants you to trust his son. And his son will transform your prayers whichever way they need to go. This is, this is what living by faith means. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with trusting him. Trusting his mediation. What does, this, what does it say about God here in this text? Uh, what does God really say about himself for us? These attributes are going to be key to understanding every single interaction with God, with Israel for the next 3,000 years, and your own life. So you better listen to how God describes himself right here. Because we can take these seven descriptions that God gives of himself, and we can lay them over every single thing that happens in the rest of the Old Testament. And like, oh, there's that one. Oh, there's that one. He's being merciful. He's being gracious. Oh, this person rejected him in pride, so God's going to be angry at them. All the, every single thing that we see that we're going to study here in just a second, we can see this is why God is who he is, and he doesn't change. He's not going to change for you. He's not. It says, again, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So let's briefly just talk about what each one of those is. Merciful. This can be translated full of compassion or tenderly pitiful. Now I want you guys to answer a question for me. What does the enemy whisper in your ear? that contradicts this. God says, I am merciful. I am full of compassion and I am tenderly pitiful. 
What does the enemy whisper in your ear? Yeah, we're not worthy of that. Um, God is not that merciful. What you've done has stepped over the line of how far he can go in his mercy, right? The enemy can say all kinds of things that will contradict this. So I'm going to ask you this question. Which one do you listen to? Do you beat yourself up because you don't think he's merciful? Or do you listen to the voice of the Spirit, the Word of God, which says, I am more merciful than you could ever understand? The next thing he says is the Lord is gracious. This means that God's heart desire is to supply all that we could ever need or want through the work and spirit of his son, Jesus Christ. God never desires us to show him what we can do or to impress him. He, his heart is repulsed by pride that keeps us, his children, from receiving his free gifts, his free work of grace. He says, I want to give grace. I am a gracious God. The word counted, uh, translated gracious comes from the idea to bend or to stoop in kindness to an inferior. So we have to be the humble inferior in order to get this grace. Okay? But what does the enemy whisper in our ear? Hmm? Yeah, I deserve his grace. I deserve God to bless me because I have tried stinking hard. You don't know what I've sacrificed for him. You don't know what I've done for God. So I deserve him to give me, you know, a candy bar. I deserve for him to bless me. I deserve it. The enemy whispers in our ear, don't worry about his grace. Let's go back to another system where you earn it. Because having to receive a free gift of grace is humiliating. And that's the way God designed it. He wants us, he needs us to accept his grace. And he knows that we won't accept his grace if there's a remnant of pride that says, I don't need his grace. So the enemy just convinces us, we don't need, you don't need his grace. You don't need God right now. You don't need God tomorrow. You, you, you talked to him yesterday, that's enough. The enemy is so skilled at tricking us into not believing what God simply said about himself. I am merciful. I am gracious. The third thing, I am long-suffering, he says. That just means patient, right? He's not in a hurry. He's not stressed about your life. Your circumstances do not blow his mind. Your problems are not the biggest problems he's ever seen. And he's fixed things so much worse than things you... He is long-suffering. He is willing to endure your immaturity. He's willing to deal with your failure. He's willing to be patient in your brokenness. And he is slow to anger. That is what he says about himself. And what does the enemy whisper in your ear? I gotta hurry up and fix this. I gotta change my life. This is going... This is going nowhere fast and I am in a hurry. Or I, I think maybe God is done with me. God is, has run out of patience with me. God can't possibly be still in love with me after I have 
fallen again and again and again and again and again. Which one are we going to listen to, guys? Are we going to listen to what God says about himself? I am patient. I am with you to the very end, and I am not leaving you. Or are we going to listen to the enemy, which says, yeah, you should probably give up now. You're a failure. You're too immature. It's taking too long. You'll never know God the way you should. All right, the next thing he says is he is abounding in goodness. Think of a, a, a cup that's overflowing. He's just abounding, and, and it's all yours. His goodness. And this reminds us of uh, Psalm 23, which says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that word follow in Hebrew is the word pursue, meaning hunt you down and kill you, is where it comes from. Surely God's goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. David had faith in God's character. Not that he was pleasing to God, not that he was earning God's goodness and mercy, but that God was going to pursue him no matter how many times David screwed up. God was going to come after me, and God is never going to let me go, and I don't deserve a single moment of it. And that's what he says. He is abounding. This is what God says about himself. I'm abounding in goodness. And what does the enemy whisper in your ear? That God is not good because you're not good. And you'll never taste his goodness because you're not good. And the enemy, just by a simple twist, got you back into you have to perform God's standards in order to see his goodness. And it's a lie. Then it says he is abounding in truth. In a world of uncertain knowledge and worry, God is not uncertain uncertain or worried. He knows everything and he's not worried about the future. He's in total control. He's abounding in truth. But what does the enemy whisper in your ear? Your life is out of control. Your situation is out of God's hand. This has just happened to you and God is totally taken by surprise and you can't possibly trust that God is there for you when he let this stuff happen to you. How could a God of love let cancer, let betrayal, let all these things into my life? What does he say? The enemy says, God is not full of truth. God is a lie. And when God says he loves you, it's a lie. And when God says he's in control, it's a lie. The, the devil has now just decided to totally contradict what God says about himself. And the enemy offers us proof. He says, look, here's the proof that God is not in control. Look at your life. Is that true, guys? Is that proof valid? It isn't valid. Because we can't see everything from God's perspective. And if you want proof, devil, look at the cross. Because the cross shows us that God loves you. And he would go to any length to forgive you and to take care of your needs. Any length. And so yes, what you're going through might hurt 
and it might kill you, but it will not destroy you because of the cross. And it will never disprove God's love because of the cross. This is so huge, guys. The enemy whispers in your ear. God is not full of truth. And God says, whatever. I am who I am. And you can either believe it, or you can believe a lie. And your whole life will be affected by that decision. Then it says, I, am, I keep mercy for thousands. This means he doesn't run out of mercy. You cannot be too bad for him to give, to, for him to give you undeserved mercy. You can't be too far. And what does the enemy whisper in your ear? Right. It says, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Again, you can't do something he can't forgive. Except the one thing, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. What in the world is that? Because I find a lot of people, they hear God say, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. The enemy comes and says, yeah, but not yours. You've committed the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you. It is, I refuse to believe that God is who he said he is. I refuse to believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus represents God, and I refuse to take him at his word that he would save me. So I am going to try to save myself, and that is the unforgivable sin. You have rejected God's door. You rejected his way to salvation, so there is no way to get salvation. If you reject God's plan for salvation, you can't come up with your own plan to get saved. It is, you call upon Jesus, or you don't. Uh, what else can I do? God says, I have shown you that I loved you. I have done it without compulsion. I have never demanded that you've come. I have done everything and then said, here is my life. Here is my soul ripped open for you. And you can take it or leave it. But know that I love you. And if you're going to go to hell, you're going to do it stepping over the dead body of someone who loves you. You can't say that's not fair. You can't say, oh, well, it's just not fair that it has to be one way. If there's one way out of a building burning, take it. Don't be like, I'm just mad that there's one door. Gosh. If God really loved me, he'd make all doors lead to the one door. No, there's one way. His son, Jesus Christ, offered his own life as your way. His body became the way. And he says, take it. I love you. But the enemy says, nah, don't do that. Do the one thing that's unforgivable. Reject Jesus. Reject God's way. That's what the enemy whispers. If someone rejects God's free grace, described above everything that we've talked about, God will not forget 
it. And that's what that kind of difficult portion is that we read there. Remember the part that says, uh, by no means clearing the guilty and visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Some people look at that and they get confused and they get, wait, 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 is it, wait. Does that mean God punishes the children for something that their parents did? And that is not what it says. He's saying that God cannot accept someone who rejects his free grace. But if your children reject, if you reject it, and then your children, they're going to learn from you what they do. And so there's going to be natural consequences that they're going to have a natural tendency to not accept what Jesus did for them because their parents didn't. But God will keep visiting them in his love, in his character of always wanting to forgive them. He will visit them, he says, to the third or fourth generation, which which is just a Hebrew idiom that means forever and ever. God does not give up on them just because their parents were idiots and didn't take God's free offer of life. I will keep coming back for your kids. That's what it means. We can't think that we can reject such a free offer of life and grace and just go on. God says, I will visit you. I'm not going to just let your family be my enemies forever. What did Abraham Lincoln say about enemies? The best way to defeat your enemies is to make them your friends. And he got that from someone famous. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If I have now found, found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. See, Moses isn't talking about just himself, is he? Who's he got with him? All those stinking rebellious people. Moses was interceding for them. They were in his heart. And he's saying, God, this is awesome. I believe who you are. So now you need to come with us because we're all one. Go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Was Moses a stiff-necked person? Yes. Not at this point in time. Like he is, he is broken. Why isn't Moses saying we are a stiff-necked person? Because he is identifying himself with the rebelliousness of the people he is saying i represent you people to god and i represent god to the people and i identify with both of them i am god's servant and i am one of you and that's why jesus became a man so that he could say forgive us of our sins do you see how moses has taken the people with him in his heart he asked for exactly what they need. He has made a way for the people to get the grace that God wanted to give them. And that's what a good mediator does. Jesus is the perfect mediator. Moses is a good picture of a mediator, whereas Jesus is the perfect one. And Moses highlights the way that this grace was to come to the people because he says we are a stiff-necked people. And that shows us that grace comes to the humble Right, The people who have nothing to offer God, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. The grace God gives leads the people to one thing. The result of this knowing God and getting his grace was Moses said, you and us, you go with us. 
they get relationship with God. Being with God was the goal. It was the whole point. It's the best thing in life. He says, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses is like, we need your forgiveness because that leads us to relationship with you where we're not afraid, but we're your children. God desires to forgive you, but he desires also to be with you. That's why he desires to forgive you. God wants to forgive you today of everything that possibly stands between you and him. He wants to take care of it today because he's sick and tired of not being with you. He loves you and he wants you to know him and he wants to know you in a real relationship. But what does Satan whisper in our ear? Who would want to know you? Your dad didn't want to know you. Your mom didn't want to know you. Your spouse doesn't want to know you. Your kids don't want to know you. Who would want to know you? And the enemy whispers that. So is it true? Or is it a lie? God's word fixes everything. And his presence is the promise that he is offering us today. And he says, I will forgive you because I desire you. I love you and I want you. And you cannot believe the lie that there is something you've done that will stand between us. I will destroy anything that holds my wife captive, that holds my bride away from me. I will come and fight any battle. I will go against any army by myself and I will lay them down because I love you. And this is what God says to you and to me today. Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Think about this. The people were down below Mount Sinai. They could think we're just sinners and we're out, out of God's presence and he hates us. But is that the truth about what was going on? No, God's love was providing the way through the mediator for them to be in his presence. So they could have easily believed the lie, I'm just a sinner. Who would want to know me? God does. And look what he says. So, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I, might, I make myself a transgressor. For, it, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. See, this text that we have in Galatians, written thousands of years after, is describing what could have been going on in the heart of the people standing outside of Mount Sinai in our text in Exodus. I can't approach in my flesh, but I can go into God's presence through the mediator. 
and I choose to believe what God says about himself, that he loves me and that he has died for me and those things I will believe. And they transport me into God's presence in the spirit, not in the flesh, in the spirit. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ to save us, all our sins are placed in him on the cross. And all our sin is crucified with him on the cross. And our job isn't to place it there, place them there. Our job isn't to be worthy of those actions. Our job isn't to try to live up to his sinless standard from, the, from that moment forward. Our job is to believe it. That's it. Believe it. And that is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not earn it. I do not deserve it and I never will. I do not set aside the grace of God, Paul says. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Guys, if we get tricked into thinking that God is judging us based on our performance to the law and, and earning his grace is based on how well you're doing, then we have set aside his grace. We have decided that to believe, we have decided to believe God has changed. And what did we say at the beginning? That is bad theology. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always the perfect standard. And no man will ever keep his perfect standard. So he must punish sin. That part has never changed. And he did. And we rejoiced because he punished our sin already. And I didn't have to die for it. Jesus did for me. And he has also never changed in that he is loving and merciful. And he desires to provide a way to forgive us of everything. His own son was delivered to be killed in our place to make that a reality. And this frees us from being judged for our own sin. God has already judged your sin. Where? On the cross. It's done. It is gone. Can you go find Jesus' dead body and dig it up? Why? Right. God has overcome death with the life of Jesus Christ. Your sin died and you cannot find it anymore. So, this is the way that God has provided for us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who believes on him, in him, shall be saved. Placing our trust and faith in God's Son is the only way to experience how loving and merciful he is. So if you want to know, if you want to hear God say, this is who I am, and if you want to know him in that way, Faith in his son is the way to get that done. Would you guys stand with me as we come before the Lord in his presence? We're going to sing some songs. We're going to read a little bit of scripture just to hear what God would maybe say to us in addition to what he gave me today. During this time where we sing these songs, this is... Uh, church is not done, and this is not like the tradition that we do at the end. Uh, this is the time when we, as his body, 
receive his grace. Call upon him for the help that you need in your life. If you want to grab a brother and sister and say, hey, I need prayer. I need you guys to come alongside me and help me to look to Christ. Help me get from Christ, receive from Christ all that um, I need. Then right now is, is the time to do that. We're going to sing one song, then we're going to read a scripture, then we're going to sing another song. And during this, let your, let your heart believe in all that Jesus has done. Jesus, we start this time just with prayer. And we pray, God, that you would silence the whisper of the enemy in our heart. The whisper that contradicts every single part of who you say that you are. The part that, uh, that tries to twist our experiences and, and things that we've heard on TV or from teachers or from friends that contradict your very revealed character. God, I pray that you would, by your words, silence those whispers. And Lord, help us to believe only in what you say. Because we will never measure up to your standard. We could never have, a, have a, a relationship with you with no fear if we were worried about constantly living up to a perfect standard. We must have your grace. And we can never earn it. So God, we humble ourselves before you. We confess that we can fix nothing. We can do nothing that transforms ourselves, but we can... Ask our Heavenly Father that you would send your Holy Spirit down to us and that you would give us everything that we need. And we will step forward in faith today, believing these things. Help us to worship you right now in spirit and truth. Give our hearts to you brand new. Help us to sing songs of joyful children who have, have believed and received all that their Father has given them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.